So Luke chapter 4, verses 5 to 13. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. All right, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, uh, thank you so much for the privilege and the joy it is to uh, teach your word to your people. Uh, I pray most of all, Lord, that your spirit would be uh, present with us tonight and that your son would be central. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. About eight years ago, I had a conversation with a teenager uh, whom we will call Jessica. And uh, for those of you who don't know, in my previous life in Louisiana, I actually served as a youth minister for several years. And uh, Jessica was a teenager who had been in our youth ministry for several years. Her family was a part of our church. And this is a particularly difficult conversation that I was having with her because she was telling me that she had decided that she was not going to follow Christ anymore. And uh, Jessica was a person who uh, was a very deep thinker, so I thought, you know, maybe she's having some intellectual doubts about the faith or something like that. Whenever I asked her, why is it that you've decided that you're not going to follow Jesus anymore, um, she said, "I, I just want to be free. I just want to be free. So the question tonight, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 4, and I want us to frame our approach to the passage with this question. What does, it, what does it mean to be free? What is true freedom? Luke chapter 4 has basically two parts to it. The first part of the passage is Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness. The second part of the passage is about the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his preaching ministry. Now, I, as I'm sure as you can tell from your bulletin, I had high hopes of covering the whole chapter tonight, uh, but you will get to bed much earlier tonight for, for me uh, changing course. Uh, we're just going to focus tonight specifically on the temptation story, so uh, don't worry about the other part in the bulletin. That is, that is my fault. I changed the plan late in the game, so thank you for your graciousness on that. So as we come to Jesus' uh, temptation in the wilderness... Uh, Luke uh, ver- uh, chapter 4, verse 1, tells us that Jesus returned from the Jordan. The mention of Jesus returning from the Jordan calls us back to Luke chapter 3, where what happens in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And kind of the high point of that story is that whenever Jesus comes up out of the water from being baptized, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And then at that point, Luke pauses the action on the story and gives us uh, the genealogy of Jesus' ancestry. 
And one of the unique things about Luke's genealogy is that he actually traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam. And then he says uh, he is the son of Adam, son of God. So there's this theme in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus is the son of God. And we see this theme continues into Luke chapter 4, and that is the central theme. This is the central idea of the temptation story, that Jesus is God's son. And the particular emphasis here that we'll look at is particularly that Jesus is God's obedient son. This is the emphasis of the temptation story in Luke chapter 4. So as we begin to see uh, in the first two verses, Luke kind of sets the stage for the story itself. And we learn if we look at these, it says that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the devil. So what was going on for the entirety of those 40 days? But we get three specific exchanges between Jesus and Satan, right? But is that all that happened in those 40 days? Apparently, the entire 40 days was a full 40 days of testing of Jesus. And what we get is a representative set of that. And I want you to see that it's very, very significant that Jesus is tested for 40 days and that he is tested in the wilderness, Okay, so, so think about this with me. Can anyone think of any other story in the Old Testament in which there is a miracle that God works at some special body of water, after which someone is sent into the wilderness where they are tempted for a period of 40 units of time? Okay? Can anybody think of this? I'm being, I'm being Bernie tonight. I actually want you to answer. What Old Testament story does that remind you of? That's the Exodus, right? God's people, they come through the Red Sea. God works a great work of salvation for them at the Red Sea. And then they immediately find themselves in the wilderness where they're tested for 40 years instead of 40 days. Keep that in the back of your mind. We'll see what that means as we continue to go along. So this brings us to the first exchange between Jesus and Satan. And Satan says... Uh, for the first temptation, he begins it with, if you are the Son of God. Remember I said the whole theme of this whole section of the Gospel of Luke is Jesus' identity as God's Son. And Satan is trying to say, prove that you are the Son of God by speaking to the stone to make it to become bread. Much like in Numbers 20, Moses was to speak to the rock that water would come out of it. So he tempts him. To use his power, and Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. The text says he was hungry, and he certainly had the ability to turn the stone into bread, didn't he? But what does Jesus do? He responds with a scripture. He says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 3. And to catch the full import of what, the significance of what Jesus says here, we need to look at a little bit of the broader context of Deuteronomy chapter 8. So let's just read it together. Hear what Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3 says. And this is Moses speaking to uh, the people of Israel in the land of Moab before they come in to take the promised land. He's recounting the history of what, of what God has done for them in the Exodus. And he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. 40 years of testing is very clear. He humbled you 
causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So this specific uh, verse that Jesus quotes reminds us of the larger story of God's provision of manna for the people of Israel in the wilderness. And in case you don't remember that story, God rescues, God rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. And right after they come, into the, come out of the Red Sea, that happens in Exodus 14 and 15. Guess what happens in Exodus 16? They find themselves in the wilderness and they get hungry. And then they start moaning. They say, oh, if only we had just died in Egypt where we were surrounded by pots of meat. We had bread everywhere. You brought us out here in the wilderness to kill us with hunger. That's what the people of Israel say in Exodus 16. And guess what they find whenever they wake up the next morning? What's waiting for them on the ground? This flaky stuff. And they actually, they go out and they, and they say, man who? What is it? And then they call it manna, which means what? <laughs> That's what manna means. But this story, this, it, it literally just is the word what. Um, but then the story goes that morning by morning, the manna never fails for 40 years. And God sustains his people with bread in the wilderness. And why did he do this according to Deuteronomy 8? He did this to teach them not to trust in food for their sustenance, but to trust in the Lord and to rely on his word. And apparently this is a lesson that Jesus took to heart because he follows, he follows the vision of Deuteronomy 8 whenever he resists Satan's temptation to use his power to feed himself, but instead trust in the Lord who provides bread in the wilderness. The second temptation, here Satan takes Jesus up to a high place and he somehow magically shows him all the kingdoms of the world and he offers them to Jesus. And he offers them to Jesus in exchange for his worship. And how does Jesus respond to this? Here he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, you shall, worship, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13. If we look in Deuteronomy 6 and 7, it's stated in these chapters that if God's people are faithful to him, then he will actually drive out the foreign nations before them and give them the promised land. But if we continue reading in the book of Deuteronomy, we begin to get the other side of that coin. If they are not faithful to the Lord, and if God's people fall into idolatry, what will happen to them then? Then they will be actually conquered by the foreign nations. And that's exactly what plays out in the history of Israel. They forsake the Lord, they worship the false gods, they worship the bells. And who comes? Assyria comes. Babylon comes. And so Satan's logic is backwards. If God's people want the nations, they don't get it by worshiping false gods. They actually get handed over to the nations by that. And Jesus knows this. And so Jesus trusts in the Lord. He refuses to bow the knee to Satan. He remains faithful to the Lord because he knows that ultimately it is to the Lord that belong the kingdoms of the world. And that he has destined them to all be given to his son. But that he will not achieve it by worshiping a false god. 
You'll achieve it by faithfulness to the Lord. And then we come to the third test that Satan throws at Jesus in verse 9. He again takes Jesus to a high place, but this is a different high place. He takes Jesus to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. It's like you want to take somebody to Boston and take them up to the top of the Prudential Building or something like that. And he says to him, again, if you are the Son of God, if you're God's Son, really, then throw yourself off and God will rescue you. And when God rescues you, then you will have proven that you're really the Son of God. And what does Jesus say here? Here he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16, where he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now again, there's a very significant larger context here. If we look at, um, at Deuteronomy 6, 13, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, 16 in context, it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massah. Okay, and Massah is a place name, and Massah literally means testing. It's a story where Israel tested the Lord. Does anyone know off the top of your head where the story about the testing of the Lord at Massah happens? It's very significant. It's Exodus 17. It's the very next chapter after the story of the manna in Exodus 16. So what happens in Exodus 17, they find themselves in the wilderness again. They're not hungry anymore, but now they're thirsty. So they go back to belly aching and complaining again, and they say, oh, you know, you just brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with thirst. And here the Lord provides water for them from the rock in Exodus 17. But Moses says that they put the Lord to the test there. In, in Deuteronomy, he's reminding the people before they go into the land, do not put the Lord to the test again as you did at Massah. And this is a lesson that Jesus heeds as well. Now, one of the interesting things about the third temptation here is that in this temptation, Satan quotes Scripture. Did you guys catch that whenever we read it? Satan, tell, whenever he tells Jesus to throw himself off the Temple Mount, he quotes Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is a song about the faithful person who trusts the Lord in the midst of hardship and how the Lord will not abandon that person, but he'll protect them and keep them. And he says this to say, if, if you're really the son of God, if you throw yourself off the top of the temple, then God won't even allow your foot to strike a stone. Well, we're going to see that Satan should have chosen a different passage. Uh, he chose a really, really bad passage. I want us to read a little bit further on. So first, let's read the section that Satan quotes. What he quotes to Jesus is this. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now notice there's this really, really important concluding image here. That the person who trusts in the Lord, God will not allow their foot to strike a stone. And that's what Satan is seizing on whenever he's telling Jesus to throw himself off the temple, right? If you throw yourself off the temple, God won't even let your foot strike a stone. Keep that foot imagery in mind as we read Psalm 91, 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Bad choice, Satan. <laughs> who is, who is the lion 
the roaring lion seeking someone to devour? Who is the deceiving serpent of old? It is the one who is testing Jesus in this story. And this calls us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? When the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and he deceives Eve and Adam transgresses the Lord's command. And terrible, terrible things happen as a result. But remember the Lord's promise to the serpent in the garden. What was that promise? I I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. There's some foot imagery going on there, isn't there? That there's going to be one who's going to come from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And Psalm 91 recalls that promise. And so what we see is happening in this story is Satan is trying to get Jesus to prove that he's God's son by these miraculous demonstrations. But all the while throughout the story, Jesus is proving that he is truly God's son in a much more profound way. That he obeys the Father and he trusts in him. And by doing this, by not being like Adam and Eve and succumbing to the serpent's temptations, by not being like Israel in the wilderness, by obeying the Father as the true son, he proves that he is also the one who has come to overcome temptation and to overcome the tempter himself. And so he emerges from the story vindicated as the true son of God and vindicated as the serpent crusher. Do you see this? What a beautiful picture of Christ we have in this story. He is God's obedient son. And by being God's obedient son, he's the one who's come to to overtake and to conquer the devil himself. This is the image of Jesus that we get in his temptation. So let me ask you this tonight. How does the ancient serpent tempt you? What leads your heart astray from the Lord? What does he say to you in the wilderness of your soul? There are a lot of people in the room tonight, and I don't know where everyone is. Perhaps you find yourself burning with anger, maybe at your children or your spouse, Maybe you find yourself burning with lust. You find yourself wanting to hoard your finances or be deceptive with money. Or maybe you find yourself tempted by laziness. You just don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Maybe you just find yourself beaten down by life. And you begin to find your disappointment growing into disillusionment and bitterness. I don't, know what your, I don't know what your tests are. I don't know what your temptations are. I don't know what your trials are. So I would just ask you now, summon them. What does the serpent say to your heart to lead you astray from the Lord? And I want us to think now that we've seen Jesus emerge victoriously through his temptation. And I want us to ask this question. In light of Jesus' temptation, How should I respond to temptation and trial? What should we do with our trials and temptations based on what we've just seen happen, play out between Satan and Jesus in the wilderness? Well, I think first, look to Jesus. 
Because Jesus' victory is your victory. There are a lot of features in this story that are easy to miss, but they're actually foundational to what the meaning of the story of Jesus' temptation is. Keep in mind that in the Old Testament, God has two sons. God has a corporate son in the Old Testament, and who would that be? It's the nation of Israel. God has an individual son in the Old Testament. That is the son of David. And this is very important because in Jesus' temptation narrative, these two sons of God, the nation and its king, are really, really carefully interwoven. Consider this, that in the story of Jesus' temptation, the story of Israel in the Exodus and in the wilderness is being replayed. Did you, did you catch the, the kind of the, the correspondences that we've been talking about? Jesus' baptism recalls uh, the salvation of Israel through the Red Sea. This happens in Exodus 14 and 15. Jesus is then tested in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years. And recall that Jesus' temptations specifically recall the episode of the manna in Exodus 16, which comes right after the Red Sea crossing, and the incident at Massah, which happens in Exodus 17. This whole Luke's, Luke chapters 3 through 4 is following the story of the Exodus, but how it's playing out in the life of Jesus. And there's one significant difference, isn't there? It's that Jesus obeys. Jesus proves himself to be the true son of God. He, he, is, he is showing himself to be the true Israel who obeys the Lord when tested in the wilderness. And this is so significant because as you look in the Old Testament, the king and the people cannot be separated from one another. So whenever there's a good king in Israel, the people are blessed. When there's a bad king, the people suffer. I think the best example of this comes in 2 Samuel 24. This is a story about King David. Uh, King David takes a census in uh, 2 Samuel 24. And this census is a, is a very bad thing that he does. It, it, it is a sin. And do you guys remember what the punishment for King David's census was? There was a plague on the people for three days. And as, and as David looks out and he sees the people of Israel under the sword of God's judgment, he cries out to the Lord and he says, Oh Lord, I have sinned and I have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? In other words, David recognizes that the people, that the nation are suffering for his sins. But what we get with Jesus in the gospel is we get the absolute opposite of that. The people have sinned. But their punishment is laid on their king. Right? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us upon him, according to Isaiah 53. And one of the beautiful things that we see here is that the opposite also obtains. And that the king, God's son, has obeyed. But who gets the credit for it? The people are given the credit for it. Think about it like this. Whenever two people get married, they become one in all ways, including finances. And, and financially, whenever you enter into a marriage with another person, you can bring one of two things. You can bring debts or you can bring assets. And whenever you agree to enter into marriage with someone, 
Your spouse's debts become whose debts? They become your debts. Or your spouse's assets become whose assets? They become yours. Now consider, if you consider our relationship with Christ by faith as a kind of marriage union, what do we bring into the marriage? Debts only. And what does Jesus do with those debts? He pays them in full with his own blood. But what does Jesus bring into the marriage? What we see here on the basis of this passage is he brings perfect righteousness into the marriage. He brings nothing but assets. And whose righteousness does that become? It gets put in our account. And God looks at us as though we had obeyed in the wilderness. And his righteousness becomes our own. So whenever Satan comes to accuse you, and whenever he says, who are you? Who are you to be accepted by God? Where is your righteousness? Then you can remind him and you can remind your own heart. You were there in the wilderness. You know that Christ obeyed. And you know that he has paid my debt. So there in Jesus is my righteousness. And this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? So as you deal with temptation and as you deal with trial, I think the first thing that you need to do is you need to look to Jesus in the wilderness and see his victory and know that the story of the gospel is that that is your victory. Second, rest in Jesus because Jesus understands what you're experiencing and he cares. I have in mind here Hebrews 4.15 which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus, he understands whatever difficulties you're going through. He understands your temptations. He understands your weaknesses because he has been tested as well. And in fact, he actually understands the power of temptation and suffering better than you do. Consider this. This is an illustration from an author named Paul David Tripp. I I heard this in a sermon by a man named Jason Meyer. He says this, Imagine a strong man bending an iron bar at a fair. The first bar is thin and weak, and it snaps in half. The second bar is much thicker and stronger, and even though the strong man exerts all his strength, it bends until its ends touch, but it never breaks. Which bar endured more pressure? The second. It absorbed the full force of the man's strength, but didn't break. On earth, Jesus was like that second bar. Because he never gave in, because he did not run away, because he never went where temptation would lead, but stood strong until that moment of temptation was over, he endured the full power of temptation. So as you think about the the difficulties that you face in your life and just the, the stress and the anxiety and the pressure, Jesus understands it even better than you do. And even though he has passed through the test with flying colors and he's obeyed, and though we often sin, Yet Hebrews 4.15 does not say that he comes to meet us in our temptation condescendingly, does it? It says he comes compassionately. 
It says he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. So he understands and he cares. And then the third thing that I think you can do based on what we see in this story is you can fight behind Jesus. Because by Jesus' example and the Spirit's power, you can overcome temptation and the tempter. I think at this point about probably one of the most exhilarating moments, maybe of my life, but definitely of my childhood. Whenever I was in the fourth grade, um, we had lunch recess with the fifth graders. Fourth and fifth grade had lunch recess together. And we always played this uh, very, very sophisticated, uh, classy game called Kill the Man with the Football. Who's ever played Kill the Man with the Football? Okay, good. You guys know it's a very, you know, it's a very complicated, uh, a highbrow game. Somebody has a football, and everyone, like, tries to hurt that person. And then whenever they go down, somebody else gets the football, and the game goes on and on. Well, there was this fifth grader named Mickey Townsley. And uh, Mickey Townsley was a man-child. He was gigantic. And everyone, everyone was absolutely terrified of Mickey Townsley. And I remember, I can still like picture it in my mind, him just running around the playground with the football, just trucking people. And this one particular day at lunch recess, I screwed up my courage. And I went and I literally leaped up onto Mickey Townsley's back. And I basically just rode him to the ground. Okay? And I, and I still remember, I remember getting up and making and sprinting a victory lap around the playground. Like I had taken down Mickey Townsley. And other people were pretty excited too. And I'm sure, that, I'm sure that my recollection of what happened here maybe is not entirely historically accurate. I, I actually do seem to remember there being a change in the nature of our Kill the Man with the Football games after that point. In my mind, people seem to be a little bit less scared of Mickey Townsley. People seem a little bit more willing to step into his path and to take him down. And why was this? Well, he wasn't invincible anymore. Right? As we look at this narrative about Jesus' showdown with Satan in the wilderness, know this that whenever Satan meets you with trial and temptation, you are not facing an undefeated enemy. He has been beaten before. And the same spirit that empowered Jesus in the wilderness is in you by faith. And you have a great victorious king who goes ahead of you and who is with you. And so know this, trial and temptation need not mean defeat in your life. And so because of what we see Jesus do here in this story, we can join the fight behind him and enter into temptation confidently, but dependently. And this brings us back to the words of Jessica, who said that she did not want to follow Jesus anymore because she wanted to be free. Now, there's a, there's a terrible misunderstanding going on there, right? To throw off the authority of Jesus is not to choose freedom over slavery. It is, in fact, to choose slavery. Jesus said that the one who sins is a slave to sin. And consider this, that whenever you cast off the authority of Jesus in your life, you fall under the realm of another authority, a much crueler authority. You fall subject and pray to the temptations of Satan, 
and to the desires of your own flesh. Consider that you can do what you will, but you cannot will what you will. You become a slave to your sin nature. So the way that Jessica was choosing is not the way of freedom. What we see Jesus has come to offer us, it is freedom. It's freedom from sin. And it is liberty. But it is not independence, is it? What we see in this story is that we only gain true freedom whenever we are completely dependent upon Jesus. And so know this, that if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for Christ tonight. Lord, I thank you that you're not a God who is far off but that you've come so near to us in Jesus. Taking on human flesh, entering into our temptations and our sufferings, and emerging victorious, and remaining a faithful and compassionate high priest to help us in our weaknesses. Father, in all of our hearts, may we cherish and adore and honor your son, Jesus. And Lord, we pray that he would be exalted in our praise tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would be with every person in this room. Lord, you know the different trials and the temptations that are going on in people's lives. I pray, Lord, that they would be comforted by the example of Jesus in the wilderness. I pray, Lord, that they would feel your nearness, that they would feel how dearly you care for them. And Lord, I pray that they would feel empowered to walk through it with Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for your great grace. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.